this. So when he's coming back, as in the days of Noah, so it's like, okay, what things, now it says right here, before the flood, people were eating, drinking, marrying, giving of marriage up until the day Noah entered the ark. All right? So there's a whole bunch of things we can preach about. This is one of the verses that I want to just say, though, I think it has more weight than just who is getting married and who wasn't getting married. All right? As in the days of Noah. So you're saying, why are we even looking at what happened before the days of Noah? Well, because this says that we're going to have some things that repeat. Okay? Genesis 6, I'm going to start here in this, these verses. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race that I've created and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. I had a couple people ask me, hey, can you just give us some more background? What exactly is this regret thing? Like, I mean, if he created everything, like he, he had to have known it was coming. What does it mean like him, him regretting this, right? And so we're going to take a little bit of a deep dive there. Anybody want to pronounce that top word? Yeah, you got it. Perfect. All right. I don't even have to say it. Um, those of you that can't read all of those little uh, words in there, that's okay. I'm going to break it down. But basically, this slide is for if you go back in the notes um, later on our, on our website. Um, but basically, there's nine places where it uses the Hebrew word that we see as regret in Genesis 6.6. So I'm going to walk through them fairly quickly. Genesis 24.67. Then the servant told Isaac all that he had done. Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother Sarah, and he married Rebekah. So she became his wife, and he loved her, and Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So the regret in Genesis 6 is translated here in English as was comforted in multiple different um, translations. And here you have somebody going from grief of losing his mom to intimacy and starting a marriage. Okay, so that's the context there. Um, we're not going to get more into that story right now. Genesis 38, 12. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hirah the Adilamite went with him. And this right here, it's sometimes it's recovered from his grief when time of mourning was ended, was comforted the time. So those are the different words used in translation. None of those say regretted. It has more to do with grief that again led to intimacy, and the intimacy that happens after that is with Tamar, for those that want to know the reference point. Exodus 32, 14. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Moses turned and went down the mountain with two tablets of the covenant uh, law in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. So here you have Moses on the mountain, right? And as they're coming to get into this covenant, right? God and the people. The people are down there making idols. They're doing all this stuff. And God got angry. And then he relented because there's this point where he's like, man, I just need to wipe them out and start over with you, Moses. And he's like, no, 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 no. Let's not do that. And God relented, right? So it's this, there's this grief, this anger that relented, which ends up becoming in the next chapters an intimacy and a, a sign of a covenant, 
All right, 2 Samuel 24, 16. When the uh, angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented concerning the disaster and said to the angel who was afflicting his people, Enough, withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Aranah the Jebusite. And in each one of these, it's relented, relented, and relented. Um, and this is grief. David screwed up. Then an angel of the Lord came to David and said, Hey, you got three options. Which option do you pick? He picks the third one. And then in the process, God is in the process of doing just judgment on, this, on Israel. And he relents. He stops. He's like, you know what? I want my mercy more. There's a lot more to that story. First Chronicles 21.16, And God sent an angel to destroy Jerusalem. But as the angel was doing so, the Lord saw it and relented concerning the disaster and said to the angel who was destroying that people, Enough, withdraw your hand. So here was sorry, relent. Uh, here's a fascinating one. In, there's a, a couple translations where it says, And God repented. Right? And so when we talk about repentance, it's, it's literally like a turning away from the direction you're going. And so it's like God was going down this path where there's you know, a just judgment, and he turns away and chooses mercy instead, which is fascinating. This is grief, which leads to a different kind of intimacy, which is a covenant in, this, in uh, Solomon's temple. So David wanted to make a temple. Didn't get to because too much blood. Psalm 106.45 Many times he delivered them, but they were bent on rebellion, and they wasted away in their sin. Yet he took note of their distress, and when he heard their cry, for their sake he remembered his covenant, and out of his great love he relented. He caused all those who held them captive to show them mercy. So again, you have this thing that's going, and he relents and goes into mercy instead. Okay? It says, for their sake relented and repented and relented, um, are the translations there. And we have grief to restoring a right relationship with his people because of his covenant. Jeremiah 20, 16, 19. Some of the elders of the land stepped forward and said to the entire assembly of the people, Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah. He told all the people of Judah, this is what the Lord Almighty says. And he keeps going. Um, and says, and did not the Lord relent? Okay, so again, we have the Lord relenting. And this is talking about, well, it's going back to Micah, but it's talking in forward about the last day's temple um, in Jeremiah 26, 19. We've got Jonah. How many people have heard the story of Jonah, right? So when God saw that they, uh, what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. All right? And in, this was impending doom to saving Nineveh and 120,000 people. So again, you have God choosing mercy over that judgment, okay? So now let's go back into Genesis 6. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And the Lord regretted. I would say, well, the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe... From the face of the earth, the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And translation, it's regretted, was sorry, um, and it repented the Lord, regretted multiple times, had sorrow, was very sad. I think 
in this passage, when you look at the other context of the other eight ones, I think the point is God was looking at it and there was so much evil in the land and there was so much stuff that was going on that it, it brought, brought him to a place of such despair and sorrow that he was like, you know what? I have to have my just judgments on this stuff. This can't last. We're going to talk about it in a little bit more deep. But, but he gets to this place and he relents. I think we see the regret there, but I think what's actually tied to that word is he relents and he finds a way. He finds mercy, right? And that's where you get the, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He's like, how can I redeem this? How can I restore this? That is the heart of the other passages, and I think that's the heart of what happens here. I don't think it's a heart of like, man, I should never have made humankind in my image. I never should have done this thing. I never. I don't think it's that at all. I think it's a, it's like me as a father of kids, and I, I see them doing something I don't want them to do, and I'm like, oh, man, like it kills me because I know what you're going to have to go through, and like, how do I restore this thing? How do I redeem this thing? How do I bring you back into a right relationship? Because this is not working, right? Except for times a lot. Okay, we good with all that so far? Yeah? Nobody friended? Great. All right, I'm going to go through some more um, Bible verses. And again, I'm, I'm throwing verses in here because I want you to see what the text says first, right? So speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful Mercy triumphs over judgment. And I think this is God's heart. Like, I think this is his heart over and over again in all those passages that we just saw. Is sometimes, sometimes he waits longer than we'd ever think. There's two kinds of um, justice that we see in the Bible. Um, and one of them is Dean. And Dean is D-I-Y-N. We'll talk about this another week. But Dean basically is this like final judgment. It's like, hey, you know what? This is what you do, and this is a, it's a harsh judgment. It's coming, and it's coming now. Like this is there's this Dean judgment. But then there's also another judgment called Mishpat. And Mishpat, the idea of Mishpat is like a restorative judgment. So one is like a retributive, and one is restorative. So in America, for instance, our justice is very punitive. It's, you did this, you will get to pay the price. And regardless if you actually repent or anything else, if you've spent your years in prison, you're free to go and do your thing again. Right? So there's this justice of like, this is this, this is how much you have to pay for it. Right? So that's what a lot of our system is. There's other countries where there's restorative justice in play. Like I was in a maximum security prison in, in the Amazon once, and it was filled with all these guys that had murdered people. And I walk in, and you know what the first thing I see? A bunch of chop saws. I'm like, why are you giving you these guys blades? Like, you, this is not, what? This, is, this doesn't work. And I start looking closer. They're all doing these projects. And I'm like, help me understand this. Like, what are you doing? And they're like, oh, well, here, you know what? We don't want them just rotting in a cell in the shame and the guilt and everything else. Most of these guys have families. So we teach them skills. Even if they're in here for life, we teach them skills, and they build stuff, they craft stuff, and we sell it, and half of it goes to us to fund the prison, and the other half goes to the family or people of their choice. So it's a way for them to actually pay and, like, restore. And some, it's a lifetime prison. Sometimes it's not lifetime, but they're getting skills so that when they get out, 
they actually can be a benefit to society. And I'm like, that is fascinating. That is a foreign concept in America, right, um, in a lot of ways. There's two kinds of this justice, right? And I think the mishpat is this mercy thing where he wants mercy. So how many times do we look at things sometimes where we've been wronged, we've been hurt, right? Even in the Bible where you're like, this terrible thing happened. Like Cain killed Abel. Like how come God didn't just drop his dean day one and say, all right, death, here comes death, Cain. No, he waits, Right? And it's generation after generation after generation. In seven generations, you've got this Lamech guy who's like, man, you think he was bad? I'm, I'm way worse. You know what? He had one of the curses seven times, 77 times for me. And then, you know, back in Matthew, Jesus is like, no, no, no. I want you to forgive 77 times. Like, even there, he's like, I want there to be mercy instead of justice. And sometimes he waits as long as he can, hoping that we just understand forgiveness enough to say, hey, I'm going to make it right. The one that has been the victim has the power to say, I'm going to reconcile. I'm going to find the way. And this is not me saying, hey, if you're in an abusive relationship, if you're in this, the thing like, you just need to stay there forever. That's not what I'm saying. It's not what I'm suggesting. But what I am saying is God longs for us to restore before that final hammer comes. All right? Um, Genesis 6. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of human were beautiful, and they married any of them that they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of human and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. And this is one of those things that was fascinating for me to watch in the group that I was in last week, because... We got to this, and we're like, and we're just going to keep reading the next passage. Like, he's like, and I was like, hey, does anybody have any questions? And they're like, no, ship shape. We're doing good, right? It was Pat that later on was like, all right, we got to get back into this. Nobody's got a problem with this thing. What is going on, right? And so we started talking about this thing on this Nephilim. Now, actually, you know what? <laughs> I don't ever do this, but I'm going to do this while I'm drinking some water. If you're like, I think that I've got a really firm, grap on, uh, firm grasp, that's the word, Whew, grasp on what Nephilim are and what the Bible's saying. I want you to stand up. If you're like, I really understand these things. Great. Um, hopefully it's not the fear of man. That's because there's some crazy stuff in here when you start looking at it. And you're like, what in the world is this sons of God finding the daughters of Adam attractive? And there's a bunch of different commentaries. And I can give you a bunch of different views and commentaries of what different people at different time periods thought. At another day, come find me. All right? Um, first of all, there was a question before we get deep into that. Um, no, I'm going to jump later. We'll give it the back. Okay, sons of God. The term sons of God is benai Elohim. All right, so in Hebrew, benai Elohim. All right, here's some other passages. And there's one other one, which is not a great context for this, but um, where it's that Hebrew word is translated in our Bible. Job 1.6 and Job 2.1 and Job 38.7. So one day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord. Job 38, 7, 
uh, when the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. And in particular, Job 1 and Job 2, it's when Satan with his angels, these angels, come before the Lord, and that's when God's like, hey, have you considered my servant Job? Which sounds like a terrible prank. We'll talk about it another day. But anyways, you've got Satan and his angels. So Satan and his angels, 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 is sons of God. Now there's other parts of the Bible where you see, yeah, and the sons of God, da 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 da, da. That's a completely different Hebrew word, right? But sometimes when we translate things through different languages, we don't necessarily have great translations. And, like, people try to do their best, but sometimes there's not, like, an appropriate word from this language to this language to fully understand what is going on. But what this is saying in here, the sons of God are probably what? Angels, demons, right? If they're with Satan. So, all right, so are the angels or the demons? What exactly does that mean? Okay, so Nephilim, most... Scholars assume that Nephilim come from the root word nephal, which means to fall and to lie. Right? The assumption that many scholars make is that Nephilim means the fallen ones. Right? So if you have the fallen ones, that goes back to like Revelation, I think 22, where it talks about Satan being cast down and a third of the angels. Right? And so you're looking at it and you're like, oh, okay, so that's crazy. Right? How many people are, are back to like, okay, let's look back at that verse. All right. So let's just say, and then demons saw that daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married any of them that they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they're mortal. Their days will be 120 years. How many people, like, See what I'm saying? Like, that's kind of an awkward thing to wrestle with. Like, so you're saying that we have angelic beings taking on human form, having relations with human daughters, and having a half-breed that's a Nephilim. That sounds like Greek gods and, like, demigods and all sorts. Like, how many people are like, oh, wait, that's, that's in the Bible? That's weird. That's crazy. Like, how many people are like, this is your first time you're like, I have never heard of this. Okay. This is why most pastors are like, man, moving on. Don't need to kick everybody out. Everybody's going to, right? Like, we don't really, because this is crazy stuff. Like, when you actually stop to think about it, it's crazy. All right? Um, another question that somebody had asked is, okay, what about that 120 years? Right? Because we had talked genealogies a few weeks ago, and how some of these people are like 600, 700, 700, 800, 950 years old. And you're like, were they actually that old? Yeah, I, I think so. I think there was some stuff that changed at the flood, right? The earth before the flood, different paradigm than afterwards. But I do think that there was people that were really, really old. And we we're like, oh, it's funny because like in our group last week, we started talking, what does that 120 mean? And then people are like, oh, well, God's saying that nobody's going to live over 120 because when we're over 120, evil is on our mind all the time. That's what we get out of the text, which is what I used to believe for a long, 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 long time. But the problem is after the flood, there's still multiple generations of people that were well over 120 years old, right? Even now, every once in a while, there'll be somebody that'll be like 122, right? And you're like... Back in the day, my old paradigm would be like, they're lying about two of those years, but the rest of us aren't old enough to fact check you, right? 
You know, there's like these Hebrew sayings where it's just like, you know, what do you say to the man who turns 120? You know, have a good day. Because it's like, this is your last one. Um, anyways, there's some really funny Hebrew things in context because there's a lot of people groups worldwide that believe that this is saying 120 years. Um, when I started looking, and this is a midrash, so this is oral tradition from rabbis, okay? So this is not, hey, I can't tell you specifically in here other than from their context, this is me saying, go ahead and wrestle from their context. Their context is that God is saying and gave a warning to the people of like, hey, 120 years from now, destruction is coming. Judgment is coming. The flood is coming. And I'm going to give you the number of years to turn even because he was gracious. And in that 100, he's like, it's going to be 120 years. And then he started looking for someone that he could find favor with. And he's like, oh, but here, this guy, Noah. All right? Now, can I tell you that that's 100% accurate? No, I can't. But I think that makes a lot more sense to me than 120 years old because we have proof in this text that that was broken like the next generation. Okay? We good with that? All right. So sons of God from the daughters of humans were beautiful and married any that they chose. Um, and the Hebrew for any that they chose, it's not like today where it's just like there's this courtship where you're like, hey, would you marry me? And them saying, oh, yeah, we're going to marry you. No, they, it was like they took them kind of deal is what the Hebrew word actually is in context. But we're not going to go there right today. Jude 1, 6, and 7. Here's some, some more passages about some of this stuff. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling. So their proper dwelling would be in the heavens, right? So you have angels who didn't keep their position, right? They left it. Again, going back to them coming down, right? Them falling, to fall, to fall, to lie. We know that a lot of that, the father of lies, deception, right? And so them coming down. What does Jared, we talked about the genealogies, and in the genealogies, the different names are often really a highlight of what's going on in their lifetime. What does Jared mean? Does anybody remember what Jared means? I mean, like in their context, it means shall come down, right? And so the understanding from the rabbis, from the Midrash, which I would say is the Hebrew commentary of this, is that that would be the time period where they're like, hey, we're coming down and, and doing this thing and having uh, that. Okay, Ezekiel 32 <clears throat> But they do not lie with the fallen warriors of old who went down to the realm of the dead with their weapons of war, their swords placed under their heads and their shields, resting on their bones, though these warriors also had terrorized the land of the living. Okay, so a lot of people, commentaries think that this fallen warriors of old goes back to the mighty men of renown, which is the Nephilim um, in Genesis 6. Numbers 13, 32 and they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land that they'd explored. They said, the land we explored devours the living in it. They eat their young, is what they're saying. Think about that. And we saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. Okay, so now you have this idea of, okay, wait a second. So small, we've got giants. Okay, so here's another one of those clues. Okay, maybe, maybe they're giants. How many people have heard of giants in the Bible? Okay, give me some giants in the Bible. Anybody? 
Goliath, that's the one we know, right? Goliath, David and Goliath. Who else? What was that? His brothers. We know that he's got brothers that were giants, right? You've got one of David's mighty men jumping in a pit and taking down an Egyptian giant at one point. You have the king of Bashan who's got a bed that is 13 feet long, right? You've got all these historical contexts. Even in the Bible, we're talking about these giants. And in fact, in Greek, the Nephilim term is actually translated as gigantes, as giants, right? And so you have these giants ahead of time, and then you have them afterwards, right? Because the Nephilim were there also afterwards. And so you have the giants in the land. I find it fascinating that you've got the promised land, right? You've got the promised land. And who is occupying the promised land is these giants. And they leave Egypt, and they've got just days to get over to the promised land, and they send in these 12 spies. And the 12 spies go in there, and two of them, Joshua and Caleb, say, Oh, this is awesome. Like, there's even a story, there's a, a verse, I don't have it in there, where, like, it takes two men to take like, a grapevine back, signifying, like, the fruit is massive. Everything is massive. Like, this is awesome, right? Like, God has given us this sweet thing. Look what God has given us. And the other ten said, no, 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 hold on a second. They eat their young. We're like grasshoppers to them. Like, guys, we can't go in there. These are the descendants of the Nephilim. You know the Nephilim that we've been talking about? Which, in our culture, we just throw into the myths and legends category because we're like, that's uncomfortable. We're going to move on. Okay, so that's Genesis, or sorry, Numbers 13. 2 Samuel 21. Once again, there was a battle between the Philistines, who are generally known as giants a lot of times, In Israel, David went down with his men to fight against the Philistines and became exhausted. And Ishbi Benab, one of the descendants of Rapha, whose bronze spearhead weighed 300 shekels, a.k.a. heavy, uh, who was armed with a new sword, said he would kill David. But Abishai, son of Zeruiah, came to David's rescue. He struck the Philistine down and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, saying, Never again will you go with us to battle, so that the lamp of Israel not be extinguished. Um, in the course of time, there was another battle with the Philistines at Gob. Another time, <clears throat> Sibaki, the Hushathite, killed Saf, one of the descendants of Rapha. Anytime you see Anak or Raphaim, um, a lot of times they're connected to descendants of Nephilim, um, historically in the Bible. In another battle with Philistines at Gob, Alhanan, son of Jer, the Bethlehemite, killed the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, who had a spear with a shaft like a weaver's rod. No idea what that is, but probably big. In still another battle which took place at Gath, there was a huge man with six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in all. He also descended from the Rapha. Uh, When he taunted Israel, Jonathan, son of Shimea, David's brother, killed him. These four were descendants of Rapha at Gath, and they fell at the hands of David and his men. All right, Deuteronomy 2.10. The Emites used to live there, a people strong and numerous and as tall as the Anakites. So again, we got more giants. Amos 2.9. Yet I destroyed the Amorites before them, though they were tall as cedars and strong as oaks. I destroyed the fruit above and the roots below. I'm pretty sure those people were also tall. Second Peter 2. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell. And actually, this is the only place in the Bible where the actual word is um, Tartarus, which is a special designation. We can talk about that another day. But it's, we, again, we translate a number of different words into hell. This one is actually Tartarus specifically, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. 
if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, which would be wife, sons, and their wives. Um, now, pretty crazy stuff, right? Like, I could keep going with more and more verses. Like, do you realize, like, there's more stuff in there, but it's all this stuff. Okay, so I want to just pivot for a second. So who believes that Magellan circumnavigated the earth? we got like five people. Okay. Education's working good. How about National Geographic is usually factual? See, I'm quickly getting into the, the bias of our culture today where everybody's like, fake news, fake news, fake news, right? How many people think the New York Times is factual? I'm just digging myself holes right now. All right. All right. How many people believe that giants existed before the flood? How many people think that giants existed after the flood? Okay, how about existed during Moses' time? How about existed in America? You're like, wait, what? Andre the Giant. We've got Andre the Giant. Come on, guys. Nailed it. All right, so we talked about at the very start. Let me go all the way up. All right, so I start off all the time of like, okay, what does the Bible say? We just spent like 25 minutes reading scriptures of what the Bible says about this stuff. I told you some of the oral teachings and rabbis' perspectives, although we'll talk about more of that next week. We've talked a little bit about historical context. We've talked about some of those things. So I'm going to start looking at some history things and some stuff where you're like, okay, so if we believe all of this stuff, Here's a question that I have, okay? A lot of times in our country, we treat mythology, the Greek mythology, the Egyptian mythology, all that stuff as, hey, these are just myths. But it's fascinating if you ever take time to match those up with like the Egyptian gods and the Greek ones and everything else, how many things overlap? And I'm not here to say, hey, all of these stories about all of these people are very factual accounts. Does everybody hear me? I'm going to say it one more time. I am not here to say that all of these stories about all of these people are factual accounts. Okay? But I do want to point out, there's a lot of these stories in every continent of the earth. Just like we talked about how, like, the flood, there's a flood narrative that happens everywhere in the earth. Like, every culture... Every tribe, every language has got a flood story. Most have these stories of a time period where you had these like gods and demigods and the giants that were battling and you're like crazy and you're like, what in the world do I do with that, right? Again, I am not saying that all of these stories are factual accounts. But what I am saying is if there was a time period where more of this nonsense was existing, it's probably pre-flood times. It's probably a lot of it. I mean, Nimrod is after the flood, but like a lot of this stuff I think is, is going on where there's clashes of stuff where you have sons of God and daughters of men that make Nephilim, and there's some sort of something that happens that's weird, right? Again, this is another one of those things where it's like, I can't say, hey, this is ni nice and easy to like, hey, we're just going to read this passage and everybody's going to agree with it, all right? This is another time for me to remind us as we wrestle through things that are in the scripture that we're like, I'm uncomfortable with this entire concept. 
that I'm saying you were released at the end of the day to just worship the Lord and not worry about all the knowledge of this stuff. Does that make sense? Right? Because this is somewhat crazy, right? Okay. We would probably see it in, in kids' literature if there was some historical thing of giants. And it's fascinating. If you start seeing Jack and the Beanstalk and the BFG and the Selfish Giant, and like there's a bunch of these ones, Gulliver Travels. And you're like, oh, but Benny, these are all just you know, made-up stories. Yeah, I get it. Let me say again, I don't think this is all factual accounts. Of, does that make sense? I'm not saying, oh, great, I'm going to go read Gulliver's Travels, and now that I know this, now I know, oh, that's what the truth is about history. Okay, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying if there's giants and there's historical giants, we would see these things in the oral traditions in different cultures. And we see these things in oral traditions of different cultures. I was, uh, my relatives come from a place called Mausel Cornwall, England. Um, and I was just looking at the spot recently. It's St. Michael's Mount, Cornwall, England. And it's in the bay. And there was a time before that huge castle was there where um, there's history. I mean, they teach it. Again, we teach all this stuff as mythology. A lot of these other countries teach these things as part of their history with the Norse and with the, the Greeks and everything else. Over here, they teach a history that there was a giant named Cormoran that lived there and would come out of the clouds because it was in this bay and so it was usually surrounded by clouds and he would come over and abduct animals and stuff. I'll say stuff for the fact that we've got little ears. Right? And go back there. And you're like, wait, what? That sounds a whole lot like a couple stories, like the BFG that goes in the clouds. Like, that's crazy. But it also kind of sounds a lot like Jack and the Beanstalk. Well, guess what? There was a guy named that Jack, and I don't remember his last name. And they have a year where he historically, by their history, went and killed the giant. And you're like, where do you come up with these stories? I, I don't know. Maybe there were actually some stories. Um, okay, how about this one? Those that were uncomfortable with that. The two signs up there. Does anybody know who that is? Can you read that? Gog and Magog. How many of you guys have heard about Gog and Magog in the Bible? There's a number of places about Gog and Magog. Did you know that every year there's countries today, every year that they throw these, they're not, it's not 4th of July, they're not throwing candy, but they're doing a parade where they make these statues of Gog and Magog and they actually bring them down the streets and they do a bunch of different things. Did you guys know that? Because to them, it's part of their history of these two giants that were in their land. Fascinating stuff, right? Um, okay. Ferdinand Magellan. Evidently, you know, the guy that is described, he talks about getting into Patagonia, and they see this giant acting crazy on the land. And so they sent a guy over and, like, made contact with him and eventually got them to, like, bring him back to a community of giants. And you're like, this sounds whack, Benny. Pretty sure Magellan is not a Christian. Pretty sure he wasn't like, let's go to the ends of the earth for the gospel. I don't think that that was his real plea in like going as a... This is guy. And yet, there's a story when you start reading through his historical context that not only was there this community of giants, they actually took two of them and tried to bring them back to England, but they died on the passage. And you're like, well, that's whack. Well, you know what? In 1615, a Dutch guy, well, two guys, Jacob Lemaire and Willem Schouten, 
They had the same experience, essentially, minus trying to take two, but down in Patagonia. And you're like, Benny, this is weird. Why are we going down to Giants? Because I just want to give you some, like, non-Christian context of, like, where they have historical texts of running into Giants. And they were talking about really big ones. 1766, John Byron went down. Same situation down in Patagonia. There's a guy named Devaca who was an explorer in Florida, and he faced aggressive giants that wiped out a number of their crew as they were first time going into Florida. 1519, Alonzo Alvarez de Pinara, uh, village of giants in the Mississippi of the United States. 1539, Hernando de Soto, Southwest American guy, said frequently came across tribes of natives ruled by giants. In fact, when I was in San Diego, there was some of the, the native tribes there that they have a, an oral tradition of giants of red hair that were massive that lived in the caves in the area. And you're like, that's weird, right? You've got Hernando del Alcaron, 200 giants along the Colorado River. I'm, I'm giving you like snippets of like their journals. These are different years, different time periods, different parts of America, right? May 4th, 1912, the New York Times wrote an article about um, a guy that found 18 giant skeletons in Wisconsin. We're a little closer to home now. In Wisconsin, they took pictures of all these things. They wrote about it, everything else. And then shwip, we were like, no, that's weird. We're moving on. We're doing the Western thing. Don't have a place and context for that paradigm. 2002, National Geographic published an article about a dozen Cyclops giants between 12 and 15 and a half feet tall. They're skeletons found in Greece. Okay? The next thing that I want to tell you is I have not taken the time to vet the next pictures. And I am fully aware that in our society, most of those that are in college and most of those that are in kindergarten can Photoshop all sorts of nonsense. This is not me saying all of these are actual and accurate representations of real life. But my guess is some of them might be, and I know that there's thousands and thousands and thousands of pictures you can find if you Google them tomorrow. Um, not right now. But when you start looking at some of these pictures... Like, this one's probably Photoshopped, right? But it was just for fun, um, right? Like, these guys in Egypt, right? This one, probably not a real skull. This one, I don't know. Who knows, right? This one looks more realistic than the other ones. Could be Photoshopped. But, like, are you getting the picture of, like, these some tall dudes, right? Like, there are people, even in the last 100 years that we know of, and I don't remember their names, that have been, like, 8, 9 feet tall, that look massive, right? And some of these in these contexts are like up to 15 and a half feet tall. That's crazy, all right? All this to say, there's a lot of context when we look at uh, the Bible, when we look at um, historical context from different cultures, when we look at kids' stuff, when we look at you know, even finding skeleton bones, there's been a long history of finding giants. And I would say, you know what? I think there were giants in the land. I think what the Bible is saying is there's some crazy stuff that happened, right? And I think the crazy stuff didn't just happen before the flood. I think crazy stuff happened after the flood too. All right, so why in the world would sons of God, these angels, these demons, come down and mate with women, Right? Anybody else have that question? Nobody? I'm going to save it for next week. No? Any, anybody want to know? No? Man, 
All right, I'm going to talk to you because you've done a little No, I'm just kidding. I think it kind of goes back to this Genesis 3 where I think there's a mystery and depth that we don't fully understand. After the aid of the tree, here's God cursing the serpent. He's talking to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And I think that there's two lines that have been at war ever since. And if you think about the, ser- the serpent that is evidently a representation of Satan, there's, like, there's stuff that's going on where there's an enmity there. I think game plan when you're talking about war is, okay, then if I can't take down God, I'm going after the ones in his image. If I can corrupt those in his image, then, then we'll go from there. And I think that that's the motivation for this, this plan of we're just going to go and, and essentially corrupt their flesh. Does that make sense? Okay. Genesis 6. I'll finish up soon. I know I'm going a long time. You guys have been doing a great job. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We're going to talk a lot more about Noah um, in the next weeks. But I want to focus in on that word blameless, because another question that people said is, how in the world... Was Noah blameless? If everybody's intent was evil all of the time, how did he stay righteous? How did he stay blameless? And there's a couple things. There's one, righteous man. If you look at the righteous man, it's actually him choosing to make decisions to walk with God that would be the hard steps of actually following, listening, trusting, obeying. All those things that were like, man, I don't know how this guy had that kind of righteousness where I like, I give him props. And in the New Testament, it's like, this guy was a righteous man. It was credited to him as faith. You know, like, there's stuff that in here where you're like, Noah's like, whew, all right. That's the, no, the righteous side. The blameless one is a fascinating thing. When you look at blameless, the word blameless means free from defect, as may be observed in the many passages describing the unblemished animal presented to God. There's a bunch of verses when you talk about Exodus, Leviticus, when you're doing the sacrifices, you had to take a pure and spotless animal for the sacrifice, right? In this context, I'm not saying that Noah was without sin, okay? That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is he was without genetic defect. By blameless, there's a purity of genetics that was in him. Does it make sense? Okay. I'm going to leave us on that, and I'll resolve some of that stuff next week. But what we're going to do right now is I'm going to encourage everybody, um, as is tradition with our church, is we're going to meet in groups of three, four, five, six um, people around you, and we're just going to pray a blessing over each other. Those of you that are new, you're like, you just put me on the stop on the spot to like pray with people and like if you're not comfortable with that like i'm encouraging you one take a step out and try it or two let somebody just pray over you okay doesn't hurt if they pray a blessing over you yeah and if you're like i've got specific things i need prayer for they can pray for you so we're going to do that as a church and then what we'll do is we'll pivot back into some worship through singing and then we'll have just time to go and meet people and hang out. All right? So go ahead, find some people, pray with them. <laughs>